0: Well hey, uh, good morning to you. If you're new here, uh, welcome. My name's Steve and I get to, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, I get to bring the word to us this morning. We're in a series in the book of Romans and uh, we have reached Romans chapter 15. Can you believe it? That's where we're at today and uh, there's a study guide in your worship folder if you want to reach in there and pull that out. And I'd like to read for us our passage for today, if I may, Romans chapter 15. Passages titled, The Call for Selfless Servanthood and Unity. Would you listen as I read, beginning in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's a quote from the Old Testament. Excuse me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. That's an important phrase. Live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And then verse 13, may the God of hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we come to this section in the book of Romans, Paul is still at it, isn't he? Paul the Apostle, the writer of this incredible letter of Romans, continues here in chapter 15 to sound the call to sound the call for all of God's redeemed people to overcome the the, the differences that they may have with one another and to seek to live in harmony together. So he's really continuing the message of chapter 14. And this call is not just to put up with each other, not just to tolerate each other, but to, to purposefully love one another. He uses the words welcome and accept and receive to accept each other despite the fact that we have some differing viewpoints. He calls us to build each other up, not trip each other up. And he calls us to strive for unity, which he says will glorify God. Apparently that instruction was needed to the church he was writing to. That church there in Rome evidently had some squabbling going on. In the congregation. Evidently, there were groups of people who held different opinions about certain issues, and unfortunately, they let their differences, what, divide them. We've seen these weren't black and white issues. These weren't absolutes. These weren't hill to die on type issues. No, they were gray area issues, weren't they? Traditions and customs and practices that that are not clearly and specifically addressed in Scripture as being right or being wrong for New Testament Christians. Apparently, certain church members there were holding others to their own standards. They were taking their own personal convictions that they had formed and applying them not just to themselves, but applying them to other people, their brothers and sisters in the church. So, for example, if a fellow church member there happened to not share their conviction about say, abstaining from all alcohol, well, then they're thinking, well, well, that guy must not really love Jesus. That guy's pretty unspiritual. That gal might not even be saved. They were judging like that. And then on the flip side, some of the people who believe they had freedom in Christ to drink alcohol on occasion, well, they were looking down on those poor immature, unenlightened souls who were way too narrow and way too rigid and apparently had to have all these self-imposed restrictions to curb their flesh or whatever. So the weaker in faith believers were judging the stronger ones, and the stronger ones had this condescending, despising kind of attitude towards their weaker brothers and sisters. And all this was tearing the church apart, and evidently Paul felt it's time to address it. And so he gets very direct with them, and in chapter 14, we looked at this a few weeks ago, in verse 3, he basically says, stop it, stop judging one another, stop looking down on each other, instead instead," he says, be fully convinced in your own mind of what you believe about these things. Form your own convictions about them, and then apply them to yourself, not to others. And we, we noted that in essence Paul was saying, look, every Christian person has their own individual unique relationship with their Lord. Two of you may have the exact opposite convictions about a particular gray area issue and yet both of you can be pleasing to God. Both of you can honor the Lord by sticking to and living by the conviction that you formed in your heart and by not holding other people to your convictions. He said it's really a matter between you and your Lord we should note that Paul didn't um, speak poorly or denigrate those who are weak in faith who didn't feel the freedom of conscience to do certain things he just simply implies they can grow stronger by acquiring more knowledge of God's truth about these things I think it's interesting in verse 1 of chapter 15 which category does Paul put himself in weak or strong The strong, right? In verse 1, we, (laughs) we who are strong, have an obligation, he said, to bear with the failings of the weak. So so he was calling on, on, on the stronger believers in the church, like himself, to be willing to limit their freedoms for the sake of love, for the sake of not causing their weaker brothers and sisters to stumble and fall into sin. And so evidently that church had both kinds. They had some weaker believers, they had some stronger believers, and probably all points in between. But that church also had other kinds of diversity. And as Paul moves into chapter 15, it's interesting, he kind of seamlessly and subtly moves from talking about the strong and the weak to talking about Jews and Gentiles. Did you notice that? We should not suppose that it was all Jewish believers who are weak in faith and all Gentile believers who were strong in faith or vice versa. That would have made things nice and neat but you know church life is not always nice and neat. <laughs> it's messier than that. Some Jewish people were weak in faith but others were strong in faith. Some Gentile believers were weak in faith but others were strong in faith. So these different levels of spiritual maturity were we were all mixed in together with different ethnic backgrounds and that made for a pretty potent cocktail there in that congregation. There were lots of differences and how the members were relating to other people who were unlike them was apparently taking a toll on their unity. Now we have a number of differences represented right here in our own church. So maybe we can understand this a little bit. We have men and women in our church. Aren't you thankful for that? I mean, I shudder to think about a church that was just all men, you know, just testosterone everywhere. We have men and women. We have mature believers here, people who have walked with the Lord for decades, for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And we have brand new believers fresh into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and all points in between those two. I love that we have several different ethnic groups represented in our church as well. It's a beautiful thing. We could talk about differing political viewpoints, but maybe we shouldn't (laughs) if we want to retain our unity here, right? (laughs) Plus, we have people from all five living generations in this church, which I'm coming to understand is somewhat rare in a church. We have builders, we have boomers, we have generation Xers, we have millennials, we have babies in the nursery, generation Z. And uh, the generations come with unique worldviews and viewpoints. We have that in our church. When it comes to alcohol consumption, we have teetotalers in this church who don't touch a drop of alcohol. We have those who do drink socially on occasion. <clears throat> and we probably have a few who drink too much on occasion. Think about the diverse religious backgrounds we have in this church. We have people who come from more Pentecostal, charismatic backgrounds. And so when we worship, they love to lift their hands in worship and maybe dance a little bit and maybe even shout. And then we have also people who come from a more reserved background, like Presbyterian folks who call themselves the frozen chosen. I mean, I would never use that term, but, you know, (laughs) more more stoic, and, and the thought of lifting their hands in worship, just is, you know, thought has not crossed their minds. Plus, in this church, we have tons of people who were raised Catholic, probably hundreds of people. I sometimes joke that we're the second largest Catholic church in Kahana. I mean, lots of folks <laughs> raised in that environment. So you think about all the differences we have in this church from a human perspective, it's amazing that we have any unity at all. We could be bickering and fighting about stuff all the time. But what is it that draws us together despite our differences? What are those shared beliefs that God calls his people to unite around and to focus on and to pull into the foreground of our minds so that our other differences essentially kind of fade into the background? Well, we see them here in Romans chapter 14 and 15. There are these These unifying truths are woven all throughout this section of Romans if you have eyes to see them. These are big, transcendent truths. When I was growing up, my dad had a little saying uh, when he wanted to kind of put things in perspective for us kids, especially when we were, you know, fighting or bickering about something kind of petty. He would say, you know what? You know what, kids? In the grand scheme of things... This little thing you're arguing about just isn't that important in light of the grand scheme of things. I never really knew what the grand scheme of things were. I just knew that fighting over stupid stuff, you know, didn't look good in light of the grand scheme of things. Well, this is how Paul deals with our little gray area disputes in the church. He doesn't just say, hey, people, get it together. Stop your bickering. He he undergirds that instruction and and surrounds it and supports it with these massive theological truths that we can all unite around. I'm talking about the deep, historic beliefs that all Christian people hold dear and that really should just overwhelm all the other little stuff. These are God-glorifying, division-killing, soul-uniting grand scheme of things type truths things that Satan cringes at these are titanic transcendent theological truths the pillars of our faith that should unite us right despite our little differences listen I would say this don't ever succumb to that popular notion that theology is boring and doesn't really matter that much that is a lie from the pit of hell theology matters it matters for the universe it matters for you it matters for me it matters for us probably more than we realize so what are these truths what are these massively important unifying truths these things that we should be majoring on that puts the minors in their proper place what are these shared beliefs that can knit us together and cause us to become like-minded kindred spirits in the church Well, I see four that Paul focuses on in these two chapters, and they are the gospel of Jesus Christ, the scriptures that give us hope, the glory of the Lord, and God's eternal purpose. And I'll say this, if if we would choose to focus on those things like Paul calls us to do, if we'll embrace these truths, then instead of Pitting us against each other, I think our little differences in other areas will actually become opportunities to grow, to grow in love for one another. We'll also see our witness to the world grow as well. So I want to explore these truths in survey fashion for the next few minutes. First is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the more I read the writings of Paul, the more I see that this was a gospel centered man, a gospel driven guy. What I mean by that is that the, the person of Jesus Christ and the accomplishments, the achievements, the work of Jesus Christ dominated Paul's thinking, dominated his message to other people. This apostle had come to see all of life through what I like to call gospel tinted lenses. It didn't matter what he was talking about. He, he could be talking about sex. He could be talking about how, how, to, how to solve relationship conflict like he is here. He could be talking about family or marriage or employment or work life or church life, whatever. Paul always sought to find the gospel connection. I've joked that he, Paul could hardly in these letters in the New Testament, he could hardly say hello to people without interjecting gospel truth. In his mind, every issue in life, if you trace it down to its root, is a gospel issue. Every challenge that people face in life has some connection to what happened on that hill 2,000 years ago and what happened in that empty tomb. To him, every sin at its root, the root of every sin, was a failure to believe the gospel. To Paul, every truly righteous decision, every truly godly decision, action found its source and fuel in the life death resurrection and ascension of the lord jesus christ he was always seeking to make that gospel connection it had become central in his heart and he sought to influence other people to think the way he thought including us through his writings here when i read romans 14 and romans 15 i see paul sprinkling little gospel references all throughout this section did you see them Let me just mention a few. In chapter 14, verse 3, he says, Let not the one who eats, talking about eating meat, right? Despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. That's a gospel truth, isn't it? Welcome one another regardless of their differing convictions because God has welcomed you and God has welcomed them through their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 9 of chapter 14, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Every Christian has their own relationship with the living Lord who died and rose again. That's a gospel connection. You see that? How about this one? Uh, Chapter 14, verse 15, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He could have said, by what you eat, don't destroy that guy, period. But he said, no, don't destroy that person for whom Jesus shed his blood. Talking about the, the, the treasure that person is, the preciousness of that person to Christ and should be precious to you and to me. Do you see this? Chapter 15, verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. No, he laid his life down for others, didn't he? Verse 5 of chapter 15, live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. Verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant. Over and over and over, Paul's appeal for unity is based on the gospel. It's everywhere if you have eyes to see it if you have gospel-tinted lenses on. I would say this. Do you know what Paul's preferred method was for discipling Christian people, people who had already accepted the gospel at some point in their life? Do you know what his preferred method was for causing them to grow and mature? It was to re-preach to them the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15.1. That's right, to repeat some aspect of that same gospel that had initially saved them and then show them how it connected to the current issue they were facing in their life. Our friend Jared Wilson has said this, the gospel of Jesus Christ is exceedingly versatile. And I've come to agree with him on that. Some of you hear me talk like this and you're thinking, I, I'm, wait a second, I'm confused. I thought the gospel was for lost people, for non-Christians, so that they could become saved. And it is. No question about that, right? People who are not yet followers of Jesus need to hear the good news of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. That's the only message that can save them from judgment. The gospel is for non-believers. No question. But you know what? It's more versatile than that. It's for Christians too. Listen, I need to hear the gospel a lot, and I'm a pastor in a Christian church, but I forget, and I'll bet some of you do too, I'll bet some of you lose sight of who you are in Jesus Christ. Is that, Am I right about that? You get overwhelmed by kids stuff, and school stuff, and work stuff, and relational stuff, and, and the gospel gets put in the background, and other things take the foreground, but I remember hearing D.A. Carson Once say too often we background what ought to be in the foreground and foreground what ought to be in the background, and he's right. As believers in Jesus, we need to hear regularly what God did for us through Jesus Christ so that we can be reminded of who we are in Christ. It's an identity issue, and we live out of our identity, don't we? We live our lives out of how we perceive ourselves, and the gospel has a lot to say about who we are now in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, the good news of Jesus is of first importance. And I always like to ask, how many things can be of first importance? Just one. Just one. The gospel ought to be prominently placed right smack in the middle of church life. You want to get along better with people that you've gotten crosswise with? You want to Repair relationships with people that there's been a fracture there and, and, and you're, you're at odds and there's something between you. to you want to live in harmony with people who have different convictions than you and, and, and come from different backgrounds than, than you come from? If you want to do that, Paul would say, first of all, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the one who came to earth as a selfless servant of others and laid his life down for others, who was not bent on pleasing himself, as we saw in 15 verse 2 but rather on pleasing his father the one who lived and died and rose again that he might have a diverse but unified family of believers right redeemed loving brothers and sisters who are united in spirit through our common trust and common submission to our Lord and Savior Jesus you get this the first great unifier of the diverse people of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ Christ crucified, buried, risen, and ascended into heaven and coming again one day. That's at the core of our faith. That's the grand scheme of things that should put other things in their proper place, their proper perspective. Here's a second titanic truth that should unify us, the scriptures. The scriptures. I won't read it again, but we saw in the early part of chapter 15 that Paul quotes the Old Testament scripture, right? To describe Christ. And then he just kind of unleashes an avalanche of Scripture in the remainder of this section. So he must have believed that, 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 that what unites a diverse group of human beings who otherwise might be at each other's throats is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the holy scriptures. The book. The holy book of God. Which, of course, is what unfolds the gospel of Jesus Christ for us. Here's what I found in my life. When I, I don't know if you're wired this way. When I neglect the scriptures, I've told you this before. I'm pretty much a mess. When I'm not in the Word of God regularly, I'm hard to live with. I know you see me. You know you see me at my best, right? On Sundays, you ask my wife. <laughs> ask those who live with me when. When I'm not in the word, even after 40 years of, of walking with God, I become irritable, easily offended. I, I take offense much more easily when I haven't been in the word. I'm easily disheartened and discouraged, sometimes by even small things, even things that aren't real, pretty much self-focused, can wallow in self-pity. You say, you? Yeah, me. But when I am faithful to have my daily quiet time with God. Hearing God speak to my heart through his word, responding back to him in prayer. Hearing God speak to my heart, responding back to him in prayer. I'm just different. I can't totally explain it. I'm more centered. I'm more aligned. I'm more in tune with the spirit. I'm more grace-filled in relating to Other people? I can let things go and slide off my back more easily, more readily than when I'm not in God's word and let things go? I don't know. Am I weird? Is is it that way for you? In short, I guess I could say when I'm in the word of God, I'm I'm just more like Jesus (laughs) when I'm in it as a matter of daily routine. If I got pigeonholed into, into only being able to recommend one thing, one holy habit to people that I love, to believers in Jesus, for your growth and for your maturity. If I had to narrow it down, what's the one thing, Steve? It would have to be this. Establish a rhythm in your life of setting aside daily, quiet time with God to read his word and to pray. We call that habit one, a holy habit habit. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, so to speak, like Mary did, right? Learning from the master at his feet, being still before the Lord and knowing anew and afresh that he alone is God. Sequestering yourself away from all the distractions, putting your phone in the other room, and just sitting with Jesus, being alone with the Lord. There's this little verse in Mark 3.14. It talks about when Jesus was calling his disciples to himself. It says, he called to himself the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. That order is significant. With him, send them forth to preach. You know what that tells me? Before Jesus ever called his disciples to a great commission, he first called them to a great companionship. To be with him. What a great calling, what a great privilege we have that too many of us neglect. So these are the big, grand scheme of things, pillars of our faith that put the smaller issues in the shadows, the gospel of Jesus, the scriptures that it says give us encouragement and hope, and third is the glory of God. The glory of God, and I can tell you this, People who are focused, Christian people who are focused on the glory of God are not fighting about alcohol. They're not. They're not fighting about whether or not Christians should drink wine or have tattoos or play the lottery. They can talk about those issues and they can even debate those issues without going to destructive places. Because they know that those matters are really matters of personal conviction that two Christians can disagree on and yet both bring glory to God. And they know that's what matters most in the grand scheme of things, that God looks great. They know that minor skirmishes that escalate to destructive levels end up hurting not only the relationship with the other person, but end up hurting God's reputation. What people think about God. And so they get passionate about that. They reserve their most intense passions and emotions for protecting the thing that matters most in the grand scheme of things. And that is that God looks great and that people think highly of God. So when church members take sides over the color of the carpet or when they become divided over whether to sing old hymns or newer worship songs, the people who highly value the glory of God know that God's good name is at stake in disputes like those. They know that countless unbelievers have been turned off to Jesus and his church because of stupid stuff that churches have divided over. And so like Paul, they become zealous for reconciliation. They become zealous for harmony and unity because they know that how Christians interact with each other on these debatable matters reflect not just on each other, not just on the church, but on the Lord of the church. They're passionate for the glory of God. I mean, if God is to receive glory from anything, shouldn't he receive glory from the people he has so mercifully redeemed by the blood of his son? Shouldn't he get glory from us? Do we really understand that the status of our relationships with each other and the state of our unity as a body and and how we welcome new people in who are different from us, that all reflects on God? Let me read these scriptures again. Maybe you'll see it more clearly. Verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, alignment with Him, centered in Him, that together you may with one voice, what? Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's not just a little phrase he tacked on at the end to make it sound spiritual. That was a reality to him. How you and I welcome new people into this church, especially people who are different from us, ideologically, ethnically, whatever, To what degree they come in here and feel warmth and feel welcomed and feel accepted and feel like they could belong here. That's going to cause them to either think these church people are so welcoming and accepting. Maybe God is like that too. Wouldn't we want them to think that? Or if their experience is otherwise, they could think, you know what? If God is anything like these people, I want nothing to do with him. It reflects on him. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Receive people into your fellowship in such a way that God looks great. There's a lot I could say about this. We've done whole sermons on the glory of God, and I'm inclined to, in my e-news this coming week, link one there so that you can listen to it. The glory of God is one of these overarching themes of the whole Bible, right? It's one of those golden threads that runs all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. We'd all do well to marinate our minds more in the gloriousness of our great, massive creator God. So big thoughts here. Massive realities that put our petty little squabbles in their proper place. And then the last one, the final titanic theological truth is God's eternal purpose so the gospel the Bible the glory of God and God's ultimate purpose and plan for his people this too Paul refers to to undergird and support his call for the people of God to be unified In that last section, I won't read it for us, verses 8 through 12. How many times has he mentioned the Gentiles? The Gentiles. The Gentiles will praise God too. The Gentiles along with the people of God, the Jewish people. And so what we see is from ages past, even back during the Old Testament times, when it seemed that God was just all about the Jews, when it seemed like God was just all about Israel, the truth is that God's plan all along was to include Gentiles as part of the people of God to make us all one. And give Gentiles a chance to praise God also for his mercy. And if there are any non-Jews in the room today, and there are, we ought to be grateful for this, for God's eternal purpose, right? Paul's point is that through the gospel of Jesus, God has welcomed both Jews and Gentiles into his salvation. Both will be in the heavenly choir lifting up praise to God, joint participants in this new covenant that we're in. And so since Jesus is Savior and Lord of Jews and Gentiles, then we ought to treat each other appropriately in such a way as to reflect that reality. I think in our day, we we don't feel that particular distinction as strongly as they did back then, Jew and Gentile. The distinctions we feel now in our culture, the dividing lines in our culture, are drawn between who? May I suggest between black people and white people? Skin color? Between Democrats and Republicans? Between conservatives and liberals? We live in a day where people are so prone to identify with their ideological or ethnic group and their, their passions and emotions are so intense about their, their loyalty there that they actually hate people who are in other groups. Isn't this true? They despise people who are, who are different from them. They shout them down, condemn them, slander them on social media. We're a nation who are, that's deeply divided in so many ways and it's ugly but listen, what if the church of Jesus Christ was different? What if the church culture was different than the culture in, at large? What if this was a place that was welcoming and accepting of all kinds of people under the banner of Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be great? What if Christ followers all actually followed Christ? Novel idea. What if we all, despite our differing opinions on these smaller things, prioritize what God prioritizes? What if we focus on the big things that we share in common and keep those things in the foreground and relegate the other smaller things to the background? Trivial differences of opinion that in the grand scheme of things just don't matter that much. It'd be a beautiful thing, wouldn't it? And unbelievers who are watching if they saw that kind of beautiful unity and harmony in the body of Christ in the church, would have to conclude God is truly among them. See how they love each other. Well, for pastors, everything can be a sermon illustration, right? And uh, my wife shared with me a little experience she had this week that as a pastor, I instinctively said, that's a sermon illustration. I'm pulling it right into this sermon right now to illustrate how little squabbles can blind us to bigger realities, to our own harm. Shirley was driving our exchange student to school one day this week, I think it was Wednesday, when all of a sudden, right in front of the school, all of the cars, all the traffic, all the brake lights came on, all came screeching to a halt. And everybody's like, we, gotta, you know, we got a deadline here. We got to get our student to school. Like now, what's going on? And everybody's craning their necks. And she's looking and peering around. And, and then she sees, oh, what, has, what was holding up all the traffic was a fight right in the middle of the road. But it wasn't a fight between human beings. It was a fight between geese. <laughs> Two huge geese a goose War, I guess, <laughs> going at it, right in the middle of Carl Road in front of DeSales. there, pecking and fighting and totally oblivious to all of the agitated drivers, all the cars that were surrounding them, they didn't care about that. Their necks were intertwined, their necks were wrapped around each other and they were pecking each other on the back, fighting away. I'm not sure if their clash was over a female or over whether or not geese should abstain from alcohol. <laughs> but they were totally engrossed in their little skirmish and oblivious to the fact that the arena they chose for their fight with fraught, was fraught with all kinds of danger for them because tons of steel could have very easily led to their immediate demise, right? In the middle of the road. Unnecessary risks were taken and massive life-impacting realities were totally missed because the only thing that seemed to matter in the moment was beating the other guy. And I thought about that because I'm a pastor and I thought, Lord, may that not be us. Right? (laughs) And missing the massive realities Of the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the encouraging, hope giving scriptures and the eternal plan and purpose of God that were meant to bind us together. Does that make sense? Let's not be blinded by our need to always be right, to always win the argument or be viewed as the smartest person in the room. We aim for better than that, don't we? Our sights are set on higher things than just beating the other guy. We see bigger realities and these should fill us with great hope, especially God's ultimate plan to make us one. One people with one voice glorifying God together. God has enlarged our vision to see things that angels can only dream about experiencing. And we get to be in it. We get to be in it. This section ends with a lot of talk about hope. Hope. The God of hope. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. The hope of the scriptures. I hope hope and pray that hope is strong in you today. That hope forms the backdrop for all of your interactions with other people. And, And when that's the case, we'll see more and more of the amazing unity that God intends to bring out of the diversity that is in this church. And that will glorify God. Well, there are two beautiful benedictions in this part of Romans 15. I thought that was interesting. It seems appropriate to wrap up this sermon with one of those benedictions right now and then offer the other one perhaps at the close of our time. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Would you take the next 60 seconds, turn your outline over, and I ask the Lord to give me some poignant questions to ask you in light of what we've just been taught from his word. Would you take the next 60 seconds and read through those questions and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you if any of those apply to you? Would you? It's a time of quiet reflection and then I'll pray for us. Father, I pray you'd speak to us now through your Holy Spirit personally and individually. Lord, I love what my friend Alan says all the time. Don't mistake what's at stake. Don't mistake what's at stake. Lord, if there is bitterness in this room right now, if there are wounds that have not been healed, from hurts that have been inflicted, if there are hearts that are scarred because of relationship sin, if there are people who are at odds with each other through their small group interactions, would you speak to them right now about taking initiative because of the gospel? Take a step towards reconciling. If there are any in the room who've never received your mercy and grace offered to them in Jesus Christ, Would you help them know right now it's available to them too, no matter their past, no matter what they've done? Or would you help them to know that you welcome all into your family through faith in Jesus Christ because of what he has done? Help them realize that Jesus paid for all their sins, past, present, and future. And they can be saved today if they'll just put their faith in you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I believe some might need to come to a prayer partner in just a few moments and say, pray for me, pray for me. I'm at odds with this person or I feel resentful towards this person or I've been holding a grudge or they've been holding a grudge towards me and I'm not sure what to do. Would you bring about greater harmony and unity because of this passage here in Romans 15? I pray as a pastor of this church, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.